0: you always want to sit downhill. So the hook set should be a a firm stroke, but a short range of motion. So, you know, fairly firm, but 12 to 18 inches, um, good hard set, you know, back into the trout's jaw is what I recommend doing. And, um, you have to be realistic too with, with when you're fishing, you know, 22s and 24s that you're not going to land all your fish. You're going to land about
1: 50% of your fish and on a good day. So That was Pat Dorsey talking about how to set the hook properly for trout. Back to the Rocky Mountain High. This is episode number 56 of the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Patreon to check out a new way to join the journey here and get bonus content, including some upcoming local meetups and the new uh, Steelhead eBook that's coming out. You can get that for for free over there. And uh, in today's episode, I interview Pat Dorsey, known as one of the best guides in Colorado and an expert on tailwaters. We talk about tiny midges and tailwaters, how to cover water effectively, and how to sight fish for brown trout. Find out about the best hooks for tiny flies and why presentation is the most important thing when we're talking about fishing these tiny flies on tailwaters. Don't miss this one as Pat shares the top red flags to think about to avoid spooking fish. Before I get into the episode today, I wanted to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. The Grey Drake produces beautiful vintage fly boxes and wallets that are handmade in the USA made with sustainable cork, reducing environmental impacts and still providing for the highest quality product. A portion of all proceeds go to local fish conservation, go to thegraydrake.com to get started today. We are also brought to you by the Portland fly shop, which is your winter steelhead headquarters. They stock all of the top brands and a huge selection of fly time materials conveniently located right off gleason street uh on off of 405 it's always great to walk into the store when you're greeted by a friendly dog and a uh, and personalized service so uh, head over to the portlandflyshop.com or stop in and see him today so without further ado here's pat dorsey how's it going pat pretty good how are you good Good. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, we're uh, I'm going to hope to uh, dig in here pretty deep on tailwater uh, fishing and and kind of tiny flies. There's a lot of I know you've covered that topic before. That's your specialty, and uh, I want to definitely go deep into that. But before we get there, can you start us off and talk about how you first got into fly fishing and and bring us back to today?
0: You bet. I was uh, extremely blessed to have a father that was passionate about fly fishing, so I I, I grew up fishing uh, both free stones and tailwaters, but I gravitated towards the tailwater side of things just because I enjoyed the technical side of the sport and just catching, you know, tough fish on small flies became my my niche. And I've been guiding now for about 25 years and that's the passion that I share with my guests every day is just that hardcore, tough tailwater fishing and uh, really enjoy sharing, sharing that with my folks.
1: Hmm. So it, so you basically, I mean, as, as long as you remember back, you kind of been doing the fly fishing thing or did you start out first doing some, some of the spin stuff or do you remember all that period?
0: I did a little spin fishing like everybody early on, but my dad did start me out um, with a fly and a bubble and then I went into a fly rod and we started out on lakes when I was a young man and I learned how to start tying flies from my Uncle Jim when I was also very young and it just kind of... just led to um, a career path in the fly fishing world. I just wanted to do what I
1: love to do most for a living. When did you, when did you know that it was going to be uh, your career path? Oh, probably 30
0: years ago, I started out as a commercial fly tire. And then um, when I was out with my father, I'd seen some guides working with clients. And I always thought that that would be um, really cool to to do that for a living and in 1992 i was fortunate enough to get hired on with the blue quill angler which is is my home today i'm a co-owner of the blue quill angler fly shop and um i've been there for 25 years and been able to make a living as a fly fishing guide which is um a real treat for me hmm.
1: yeah and that's and on one of the what's known as i haven't fished it before but just um you know some of the rivers you fish I guess the South Platte especially is known as some of the most challenging fishing uh, out there I want to dig into uh, you know that tailwater fishery and and how you do it um, but I want to hear a little more about uh, before I get there a little bit more about you know that commercial fly tying. so you have the background with your family uh, I think you, so your dad and and grandfather were in fly fishing or, or just your dad? My
0: dad and my grandfather were in fly fishing, and but my father and my grandfather never really tied flies, you know, to speak about, you know, about, I mean, it, but my uncle was a super passionate fly fisherman as well as, um, a fly tire. And, and so when I was, you know, 10 years old, my uncle Jim, he taught me how to tie a red ant, which is one of his specialty patterns back then. And then like many other fly fishers, you, you know, you, you learned how to, teach yourself how to tie flies from the jack dennis manuals. that was really the best source of information back then and um, jack became a mentor of mine and i I learned so much from him and and, but i did i I, when i was raising my family i I, um i was tying flies and lots of them
1: Mm -hmm. and then uh, and so you mentioned uh, jack dennis definitely uh, obviously a huge name and you know fly fishing are there any other uh people that had a big influence on you similar to uh, jack along the way Jack was
0: Jack was obviously a, a huge mentor of mine, and, and uh, I think you know, if, if one name stands out, that's him, and, and today we're still good friends and and um, I just appreciate all that he's done for me and and that's kind of my goal, you know, now I like to give back to the fly fishing community and help you know young anglers that are trying to enter the sport or young guides that are trying to enter the sport, and I think that's really an important thing um, to give back.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What's, um, I definitely talk to, uh, occasionally talk to some younger kids. Uh, do you have any, uh, maybe a tip for, you know, that young kid that's listening right now that wants to get into it, that wants to maybe be a guide or get into fly fishing, uh, what he can do to, to get prepared for it?
0: Well, I think, you know, you have to follow your heart and, you know, if you want to do it, then you got to do it and don't let anybody tell you that it's not feasible. I mean, it's tough when you start out, you know, you're going to start working for a shop and you'll probably be on the bottom of the guide rotation. But, you know, if you work your way up and you're a professional and, and you, um, start getting a return clientele then things just keep moving along and it's, uh, it's such a rewarding career. I mean, there's so many people in this world that are unhappy with their jobs and what they do for a living. But I truly am jazzed up about going to work every day. And, um, the waters that I guide on are technically challenging. So you have to bring your a game every day. So you really have to be prepared and you have to be ready to go to work. Otherwise you can get humbled pretty quick out there.
1: Hmm. And what do you think for you is the kind of the most rewarding thing about guiding? Well, for me, you know,
0: it's always important to establish goals and expectations either before the trip or that morning of the trip. And, you know, for me, I want, my anglers to be better fishermen at the end of the day. And if I've done that and accomplished that goal, then I'm pretty excited about the trip. And the The guide day never really ends in my opinion. I always give out my card and I let people contact me freely for more information. And, you know, you just keep learning. And, uh, that's, that's the greatest part about this is nobody knows it all. And we just keep learning as we go along.
1: Yep. Yeah. That's, that's what it's all about. What, uh, just, uh, you know, about guiding again. So if you're, maybe you can take us back, uh, you know, to somebody who hasn't been on a trip with you, you know, what it, that first time when they walk up and meet up with you and the whole process. And, and kind of before you jump into that, can you talk about just along with that, uh, just somebody who doesn't even know what a tailwater is and explain, uh, you know, kind of briefly what a tailwater is and why it's can be challenging to, to catch fish there or why it can be great, I guess, as well. Right. Well, a
0: tailwater is, is a year round fishery because of the outflow being come, coming from the base of a dam. So, when you refer to a tailwater or a tail race, it's the fishery below a stillwater impoundment. And there's a lot of variables uh, with these fisheries. Some are top release, some are bottom release, some generate power. So, there's a lot of challenges that are associated with tailwaters depending upon where you are. The South Platte. Um, the tail water that I guide most of the time is um technically challenging because it's cold water, it's clear water, it receives a lot of pressure, the aquatic life is small, and it's just it's a difficult place to catch fish. And the South Platte, um, in Cheeseman Canyon, where I do a large percentage of my guiding, there's a common belief amongst South Platte regulars that if you can catch a fish in Cheeseman Canyon, you can probably catch fish just about anywhere in the world. And so it's a it's a very, very humbling fishery, and as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you have to always bring your A game. Otherwise, it can be a tough day.
1: Nice, and I want to talk a little more about Cheese Canyon, But can you bring us back to that? Um, you know, that moment where so I'm going on a trip with you. I'm I'm meeting you out. Uh, you know, I guess on the river at the the shop. Or can you just take us to that point when you first get on the river and what what it feels like as a as a client of yours? The whole process? yeah, I mean, I.
0: I, I just begin, um with what they want to accomplish for the day. I mean, some people um, could care less about catching fish, but they're more concerned about getting better. And that's what I feed off of. I feed off of somebody who um, is passionate about fly fishing. Um, I like it when they tie their own flies and, you know, you share those common bonds, but you know, my goal is, is it's their day. And I know it costs a lot of money to fish with me. And, Obviously, the stakes are high when you're collecting $500 for a guide trip. But at the day's end, you know, I just want them to have a good time. I want them to improve. And for eight hours, we we are um, side by side and, and having a great time. And when they catch a fish, I catch a fish. And that's what's so rewarding about guiding is you actually get to fish through your customer for that day. And you fish it a lot like or you guide it a lot like you would if you were out fishing on your own and that's such a rewarding experience as i mentioned when they catch fish you catch a fish and it's pretty good feeling
1: Hmm. so what does it feel like when they don't catch fish or do you have those times where the fishing's just really bad and i mean how how do you you know how do you deal with that and i guess again that's expectations but um what's that how does that process uh, go down when you and are you typically fishing like half days full days
0: I do the majority of my trips are are um, full days they're eight hour trips, so I usually will meet my customer in the morning around six thirty or seven and then we hike in and that can be anywhere from a mile to three miles depending upon the time of day and the you know the day of the week, whether it's a weekend or weekday but um there's just a lot of variables that you can't control i mean for instance, if you're on the water and and um the Denver water board decides to raise some water to meet downstream irrigation demand, then obviously that can affect the fishing. And so that that can be that can be challenged. So, you know, you're dealing with rising flows, you're dealing with um, declining flows, um, sporadic hatches at times, um, people, you know, excessive crowds, etc. So, you know, you just have to you just have to be willing to adapt to these changes and you know, usually you can, you can make it happen. Obviously, um, you have slow days and, and those are the tough ones when you get home in the evening and you've, you've had a, a challenging day and you didn't, you know, catch as many fishes that you'd hoped for, but you know, that's fishing. And, and, um, if you're, if you're a pro and you work through those things, you know, those kinds of things do happen, but you still are a teacher at the day's end and you've taught your client a lot of new skills and tactics and techniques that hopefully will elevate their game down the road.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the point. Is being a guide, you can have a, a slow fishing day, but they're going to learn a lot more things from you, including uh, some good water to fish. And that kind of ties into um, you know, again, out there when you get uh, heavy traffic and you know people, guides, and lots of people on the river. I know that river is pretty heavily fished. How do you, you know, how do you deal with that? And then what sort of tips would you give somebody else that's heading there in a very heavily fished area to, to kind of have a successful day?
0: Well, I think, you know, you need to know the the river intimately. That's important. Um, I think a lot of anglers get trapped in a rut and they kind of, you know, return to the same piece of water based on previous success. You know, they've done really well in this particular run or riffle or whatever, and they continuously go back. But, you know, things change as far as conditions are concerned. It could be high or low or um, a different time of the year. But, you know, I, I try to, you know, move around based on the prevailing conditions um, and and they do vary greatly between winter and summer. You know, right now, as we go into the winter months, the fish are starting to, uh, you know, move into the slower, deeper water where they'll overwinter now for the next several months. So, obviously, targeting the correct water is is very very important. And then moving around, you know, I I tend to move a lot. I cover a lot of water. I generally will fish, you know, a mile or two of water a day. So. Making a few casts in a particular area, try to catch fish, then move on. And you know, I try to do that so that my customer gets um, exposed to a wide range of water types throughout the day and different circumstances.
1: Mm-hmm. And is that is that a key for tailwaters? Is just uh, you know, you just want to cover as much water as possible during the day. If you're not getting, uh, if you go to a spot and you don't get a positive reinforcement within a few casts you you keep moving and, and are you also breaking up the river into kind of little zones as you're going or how, how do you work that
0: yeah i'm mean, if i'm working a traditional you know riffle run pool tail out then i'm going to spend a little bit more time in there um than i would if uh if i was fishing pocket water or something like that so again i think you know you know as an angler whether you're a guide or just um fisherman for the day you know etiquette is is extremely important and so you need to um you need to move around and you know not stay in the same hole all the time because you know you, you, you hate to see somebody you know fish the same hole for three or four hours it's just it's not good etiquette
1: right right and i guess and you could so people do do that and they do catch fish i mean zoning in on one little spot that's uh yeah it's interesting different different styles um well, there, there's a lot of stuff I, I want to dig into. I guess we can just jump in, you know, first when we're thinking about, you know, we talked about the top about tiny flies and fishing tailwaters. Can you, I mean, I guess first talk a little bit about, I mean, tiny flies, are we just talking about midges or maybe you can explain what, you, you know, we mean by tiny flies and then take us back to how you catch fish over there on, on the tailwater, the kind of the whole process for you.
0: As a general rule, you know, as as a tailwater enthusiast, I mean, most of the flies that you are going to be fishing are going to be sizes 18 down to 24 and on a rare occasion, like this time of year, and then we'll, we'll drop down to 26s. Um, and, you know, there's sometimes the difference between catching fish and not catching fish is fishing a 24 instead of a 20 or a 22. So uh, that's one of the variables that I can not control. I can't control you know, the crowds, I can't control the flows and and a lot of those situations, but I can control, you know, my presentation, my drift and the flies that I fish, which is a general rule. I think I fish smaller flies than the average person. So um, obviously understanding, you know, the aquatic life and, and having a good idea of entomology is going to be an important part to success. So matching the hatch based on, you know, the prevailing hatches, whether it be spring summer or fall or winter you're you're going to increase your odds by having that knowledge and being able to fish the correct flies um, during those hatches
1: gotcha so if you go in there let's just take for example it's uh we're going close to December now in that range if you're in December what uh you know what's the start are you going to go in there do you have a couple flies in mind that you're going to start off with or what's happening this time of year
0: I do. And I am i don't switch flies a lot. I think, you know, one of the most important things to being successful as an angler is keeping your downtime to a minimum. So I do have a few flies that I, that I really um, think they're going to be effective this time of year. Um, and what we're starting to see now is we're starting to see, you know, a few sporadic betas still left. So mayfly nymphs can be important midday, but we're getting to the time of year where midges is gonna be the main um diet for these fish. So having midge larva and uh, midge pupa, and then of course some adults, if you see some some rising fish to adult midges, then um there's certain patterns. But like I like a mercury midge, a black beauty, um top secret midge, those are some of my favorites. Sometimes some red midge larva is very effective, and then uh Matt's midge and griffith gnats are and parachute atoms those are some of my go to for for dry flies, so it's fairly basic patterns fairly common patterns, but pretty effective and more importantly you know keep them small this time of year and just really uh, concentrate on precise dead drifts um, and sight fishing that's that's one of the most important things this time of year is is trying to keep your flies in front of fish, so I'm looking for small pods of fish and then um, Trying to concentrate my efforts on on those.
1: Yeah, that's a great tip. So, now with sight fishing, do you have any um, recommendations there, or how you can become a better sight fisherman? Other than I guess wearing good polarized glasses, any any tips on making sure you're not spooking fish, or you know, just getting getting into those fish?
0: Yeah, you know, we've got really low flows right now. We're we're at about sixty cfs on on the South Platte, so flows are low. So it's it's a great time of year to be able to sight fish. Um, some of the bigger fish are caught this time of year because you can actually see them and actually catch them but the trade-off of course is they become a little bit on the edgy side so definitely wear drab colored clothing and and be careful as you wade into the streams and and uh, sometimes they'll spook just from an arm movement you know when you're getting ready to cast and so on and so forth so you do have to be a little bit stealthy this time of year but you know looking in the right water to begin with which is going to be the slow water margins now you know in those those deeper pools and slower tail outs, um, and those present a challenge in themselves because of the slow water they 're just tougher to fool fish there so but you know looking in the right place to begin with, and then you 've got to train your eye I mean sight fishing is uh, a skill that takes a fair amount of practice, you know looking for browns and rainbows um, you know you just got to practice to get better at that
1: yep, yeah and that 's part of that 's just finding. Knowing where maybe you're seeing a shadow or something where you're not necessarily seeing the whole fish, but uh, yeah, like like anything, it's just a little bit of a, a skill you develop over time.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I just, um, I think you know that's that's something that my guests each day really like to work on because it is a difficult um, skill to master, but certainly once you do, I mean, the odds, you know, of you catching more fish are going to go up greatly.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so I've fished tailwaters before and, uh, you know, definitely the indicator with, the t- uh, you know, a midge underneath it. I mean, that that's a technique that's done well for me. Can you explain a little bit about, um, you know, whether you're usually using indicators or that process in your kind of your terminal tackle set up, you know, again, if you, I guess, depending, say we're fishing nymphs, how you would do that?
0: Yeah. I mean, we do fish, you know, nymphs the majority of the time on the South Platte. It's, uh, it could be a good dry fly fishery, but as a general rule, you're going to nymph fish about 90% of the time when when you come to the South Platte or or most tailwaters. I mean, it's it's the most effective strategy, although you want to be prepared to fish streamers and dry flies, and and I usually am. But nymphing, you know, from a guide standpoint, is going to be the most reliable method to get, you know, your, your customers on fish. So we can fish three flies in Colorado, and uh, that does vary depending upon— the state you go to, Montana, you can fish too, and New Mexico, you can fish too, in your tandem rig. So, um, you need to make sure that you, you know, you check the local local uh, regulations on the number of flies that you can fish. But typically, I I use some sort of a a tractor in my in my tandem nymphing rigs, um, and that changes greatly with the time of year. This time of year, I'm using a, a flashy midge of some sort, but y- you could use an egg pattern, you could use a caddis. Larva. You could use a stonefly. You could San Juan worm, a scud, and, and those are all just based around, you know, what's going on on that particular time of the year. So I kind of base my attractor off what's hatching at the current time. When the water gets low like it is now, you got to be careful that you know you don't use something big and gaudy because that can become a red flag and that can spook more fish than than you actually attract. But then this bread and butter patterns off that attractor. Um, right now, I've been running a mercury midge on the top. And then dropping a uh size twenty four black beauty and then a size twenty four top secret off of that. So I'm kind of imitating larvae and pupa and just doing a lot of mid column fishing, um looking for suspended fish, which is a telltale that they're actually feeding, which is another important at you know, thing that you gotta be concerned with. You know, are the fish that you're targeting feeding or are they sitting not? on the bottom? Yeah, exactly.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah, those are awesome. So, I'm just picturing your setup. So, you have your main attractor pattern, which might be, yeah, whatever's out there. Maybe it's a size 14 or 16, something a little bit bigger. And then off of that, you're t- uh, tying it off the bend of the hook, your your next fly down like 10 inches or something like that. And then you're tying the next one off the bend of the hook. Is that is that how you're doing it?
0: That's correct. I uh, I do. I, I take the attractor and then 10 to 12 inches below that, I come off the bend to the preceding fly. And then and then another 10 to 12 inches there. So, And I typically will run my, you know, my emergers and my pupa in the uh, last dropper position, because you want those to ride higher in the current. And I tend to fish my larva and nymphs closer to the weight. And uh, I keep my indicator um, one and a half to two times the depth of the current. I'm a big fan of the yarn indicator. We use an orthodontic rubber band and a piece of yarn, which allows us to adjust um, this setup very easily. And then I start with a number six split shot about a foot above my attractor, And then I add um, JP's nymphing mud, which is a moldable tungsten putty. And that allows me to fine tune my weight uh, based on where the fish are holding in the water column.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. So so that's pretty much it. And, and on your leader, uh, what type of leader are you using? And does it matter that much? Um, you know, talking about size, I guess you're using small flies, so you want to use some pretty uh, small leader.
0: Yeah. I mean, I typically start out with a nine foot, uh, four or five X leader, depending upon the size of my attractor fly and clarity has, um, you know, makes a difference too. And, and, you know, the, the, the volume of the water can make a difference on the size of the the leader that you fish. But, I would say day in and day out, a nine foot five X is what I use most of the time, and then I add, you know, twelve to fourteen inches of tippet and tie on my 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 next fly. Um, but I just use a, a nylon leader, and uh, I use a fluorocarbon tippet. I carry uh, fluoro and two X, three X, four X, five X, and then I use six uh, X monofilament. And a lot of people um, are always intrigued with that type of rationale, but. Um, I haven't found that 6x fluoro and 6x mono make that big a difference. So, uh, mono is is uh, much more um, environmental friendly, and so I, I just go through spools of 6x um, nylon tippet. So,
1: gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, I had uh, getting back to the uh, indicators. It's always an interesting topic. I had uh, Gary Borger on in episode 45, and. Yeah, he, he talked about some cool stuff about his. He li, he likes yarn indicators as well and he actually even sometimes uses like uh, up to 3 indicators on his on his leader so he can fish different depths and it was something I hadn't heard about before but but it makes sense that even, you know, well maybe in your situation you might be scaring the fish if you got stuff indicators under the water but can you talk a little bit about the indicators you use and why yarn is better than I mean you got the thingamabobbers, you got all these other indicators why you like yarn? and the the type of yarn you use or the type of material
0: yeah we use a like a tan poly craft um cord and um it i don't think there's any um doubt that yarn is is the most sensitive strike indicator that you could use um and especially in slow water and in winter fishing i mean it's going to detect the most um subtle strikes that you're going to you're going to see while you're nymphing. I mean, sometimes it'll just spin or sometimes you'll just get a little tiny micro dimple underneath it. So um, I think that's one of the beauties of yarn is, is it will help you catch more fish because it's just a lot more sensitive. Um, the tan yarn is not going to spook fish and it it, it hits the water soft. So I think, you know, thingamabobbers are, are good to carry. I do carry them and I use them in, in situations where the wind might be blowing or, my customer might be having a little bit more difficulty casting or something of that. But I would say 99% of the time I'm I'm running a yarn indicator just because I think it stacks the odds in your favor. And uh, with that orthodontic rubber band, and it just allows you to uh, adjust it frequently. And I think, you know, that so many anglers get, again, they get trapped in a rut and they put on a BB and they put on a thingamabobber and they don't make those necessary adjustments that's... Important um, in catching more fish.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I love, uh, now that I've had a, a number of guests on, just hearing, uh, you know, everybody talk. And I haven't talked a lot about indicators, actually, because, I mean, I had, um, you know, Devin Olson and some other guys that were talking about more of the, uh, you know, the euro nymphing stuff. But um, I'm just thinking back to that Gary episode, and I think it was in the intro I put in there where he talked about how... He doesn't necessarily use the indicator for um, detecting strikes it's more to just tell him where his fly is at um, you know do, does that make sense to you and I don't know if you want to I could um, I could play a little clip of that real quick if you know we want to listen to that but um.
0: now the purpose of the indicator is very interesting because and I and I'm the one that really sort of promoted the whole concept of indicator fishing uh, through that uh, video that we did on nymphing. And the whole concept there is that the indicator, yeah, it can indicate that the fish is taking the fly. But the whole indic- the whole idea is it tells you the speed that the fly is going because if the indicator is going the same speed as the foam on top, then the fly is going the same speed as the foam on top, which means the fly is not on the bottom. It's
1: up near the top. Does that, does that make sense at all as far as maybe it's not always indicating when the fish is on but tells you about your fly?
0: Yeah, I mean um, – it, it 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 does more than detect, you know, that you you've got a strike. I mean, it, it gives you a point in which you can mend, and control drag. That that's a beautiful thing. It does certainly help uh, identify where your flies are. But I'm I'm more of a traditional nymph fisherman that I use the um, indicator, you know. Uh, when you high stick nymph, I mean, the indicator's doing the fishing for you. And that that's the beautiful thing because you're doing suspension niffing. So you just have to, you know, adjust the weight and adjust the indicator depth to get your flies in the correct part of the water column. And so, so many times, you know, in, in the tailwater world, you see the fish eat the fly well ahead of the indicator moving. So we're constantly looking for lifts or flashes or even the mouth open. And It's amazing. You know, I I think that it's somewhere around a third of your strikes go completely undetected if you're relying strictly on the indicator alone. So um, the value of the indicator is it it does help you detect strikes, especially in faster currents because it'll tighten up quicker. But in in slow water, I mean, it it just really helps you uh, get a good drift and it helps you detect those very, very subtle strikes.
1: Yeah. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud to myself, like, so he's talking about more getting on the bottom. So you're talking about a different thing, right? You're talking about more of these fish that are mid, uh, kind of midstream or mid depth, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, um, the, the interesting thing, you know, when you, when you look at the water column, obviously the water on the surface is two thirds faster than the water on the bottom. So it, it's moving quicker. So, you know, that, that is the beauty of, being able to try to get your, you know, your strike indicator floating about the same speed as those bubbles. And so um, obviously you, you, you use weight to get your flies down in the, in the water column. But um, a lot of times you have to be careful, too, with, with the weight, because if you have suspended fish that are holding mid-column, I mean, it's entirely possible, entirely possible to be fishing below those fish. So, you know, the weight management, you know, is critical. for for nymph fishing and I think that's where you know a lot of little things add up to big things as a tailwater enthusiast you have to you have to be uh, you know a master of the nuances you have to you know you have to be constantly adjusting the indicator constantly adjusting the weight and you know like the old joke is in our business you know the difference between a great fisherman and a not you know an average fisherman is one split shot you know it's like um it's just critical you know to, to adjust that weight.
1: And, and you want to be, and I know when I've done some of the, uh, fishing with the midges under an indicator, you know, I guess I fished them sometimes. Actually, I know there's one technique. One time I was out there fishing, I'm only like 12 inches below the indicator. Um, but I guess that also depends on the depth of your water. H- how do you determine, uh, you know, wh- how far, because you want to be what, like a, a few inches or a foot above those fish or, or where are you trying to put that fly? If you see the fish,
0: if I, if I know those fish are, you know, fishing, if they're feeding, you know, mid-column, you know, let's say they're two to three feet below the surface of the water, then um, I'll, you know, I'll slide my indicator down to where it's, you know, about six feet, you know, five feet above, um, you know, the 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 work the depth that I'm trying to achieve, you know, so um, you know, like. If, if the fish aren't actively feeding and they're holding down near the substrate, then you need more weight and a de- deeper drift. And if they're mid-column, obviously you need less weight and shorten your indicator up. And if they're fishing, if they're feeding, you know, close to the surface, that's a good opportunity to, you know, fish with a dry and a dropper. So there's a lot of um, different techniques that you can use to vary um, the depth of your flies.
1: Gotcha. And what's the quick, just quickly on a dry dropper, what would be a typical setup you'd use for that?
0: You know, I kind of, again, base it on um, what's coming off, but it could be anything from fishing like a high-vis Griffith gnat um, with a little um, tungsten, you know, dropper, like a midge pupa dropper behind it to um, fishing, you know, something big like Amy's ant or a hopper imitation with a beadhead pheasant tail behind it or a caddis with a beadhead pheasant tail. So it can vary quite a bit. Um, I, I typically go anywhere from 12 to 18 inches on my droppers, you know, and uh, typically just fish one dry and one dropper.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Even though you could add another one, but you're kind of using the you're using the dry fly, and then 12 inches off that, a little same thing, a little midge pattern just under the surface, or letting that go down on its on its own weight, or you add a little bit of maybe a bead head.
0: Yeah, I usually, you know, I'd use a bead head and, you know, you can vary your sink rates based on, you know, if you use a glass bead, if you want to keep it, you know, a little closer to the surface, uh, brass bead or a tungsten bead. So you can vary your sink rates just based on um, the beads that you choose or the flies that you choose to fish as your dropper.
1: Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. The Portland Fly Shop, located in the Pearl District in downtown Portland, with over 50 years of combined fly fishing experience in the Pacific Northwest, the Portland Fly Shop has all the gear and knowledge you need to find success, whether on the river or behind the vice. One of Hairline's top 100 dealers in the nation, they have a great fly tying selection and carry all of the top brands, including Sage, Loomis, Hatch, Airflow, and many more they are your winter steelhead headquarters with over 13 years of guiding experience and 20 years of professional flight tying knowledge. They will get you dialed in on the vice or on the water. And I remember actually when I first met uh, Jason, it was a number of years ago in another fly shop. And I knew right away that he totally knew his stuff and he was a super cool guy. So it was pretty cool and surprising when I walked into the Portland shop for the first time and saw the same friendly face there that I remembered from a few years back. So uh, really cool local story here. Um, they offer a wide range of guided trips, um, adventures up to the Olympic Peninsula in Upper Columbia. If you want to kind of get out there without having to go too far. And uh, you can give them a call at uh, 503-265-8060 or visit them online at theportlandflyshop.com. Portland, born and bred, on parking, just two turns off of 405. We are also brought to you by The Gray Drake, who produces high-quality vintage fly wallets and boxes. Their motto, progress through tradition, respect through stewardship. The fly wallets are handmade in the USA with sustainable cork, uh, and these boxes are naturally self-healing, which essentially means that it holds it can hold a little tiny midge or some big daddy stone flies and it'll last and and hold the flies for years to come the ho river wallet is kind of the rolls royce of fly storage double line leather and calf skin protects your flies high quality wool um, includes um, a way to pull out moisture out of the fly and you'll definitely be proud to pass this one on to the next generation i personally have you know i've always loved the fly wallets i remember studying the old wallets that were passed down from my grandfather and and my dad. And there's nothing that really comes close to feeling those old, old, uh, you know, those wallets until Roy, you know, the the wallet the Great Drake has here is kind of sharing that same tradition. So it's pretty cool, classic feel and reminds me of kind of the old days. So right now the Great Drake is donating a portion of proceeds from all sales through the end of the year to Wild Steelheaders United to help defend remaining runs of Wild Steelhead in the Pacific Northwest and Idaho. Head over to thegraydrake.com to grab your FlyBox wallet today. That's t h e g r e y drake.com. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, and have you ever used a um, a hopper with a hopper dropper and a dropper hopper? You know, I, I I've never yeah
0: I've never <laughs> I've, done that. I've <laughs> just yeah uh, I've I
1: was just thinking the the, the Drake uh, podcast. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard that one before, but they have uh, Hank Patterson who's uh who's the greatest fly fishing in the world uh greatest fly fisherman in the world he was on in uh in one of the episodes but he does the intro to the drake and that's that's what his uh, his intro is the uh you have to listen to that episode to, or listen to, to him say it but yeah i mean is it typically just a hopper with a with a dropper yeah i mean you know
0: people people do fish you know a mini rig what we call it so you could have you know a hopper and then a beadhead like a copper john and then yeah and then you could have another dropper off that so you can you know in theory your 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 big dry fly becomes your strike indicator and you know dry and droppers are are it's great you know you carry two rods and um it just it gives you an opportunity to fish some skinny water that you'll find a lot of feeding fish and it also is uh, a stealthy way to fish because you know a lot of these fish become sensitive to strike indicators so they can spook from strike indicators and that's that's the beautiful thing about a dry and dropper
1: yeah that is cool yeah it it is your that's your indicator so you same thing and you can is a is a dry indicator or that sort of dry dropper more um subtle or is it do you see better can you uh detect better takes than a normal yarn indicator
0: well you're you got a couple things that you look for when you're fishing with with dry and droppers. Uh, A lot of times there will just be a flash underneath your your dry fly that would indicate that you had a take. Um, Again, you know, a large percentage of the strikes go undetected if you're relying strictly on that dry fly to sink. But, you know, sometimes when they grab it, the the indicator, the dry fly um, will sink and take off or, or, you know, that's obviously an indication that you got to strike, but more times than not, I just see a fish that, that potentially, you know, the flash of the fish, or you see a mouth and keep in mind, you know, you're, you're close, you know, you got your dry fly and then you only have, you know, a foot or 18 inches of, of tippet there. So you can kind of keep an eye on, on your dropper pretty easily.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. No, this is awesome. I uh, definitely have more, a little, a few more uh, topics I want to dig into, but I had a, a question I was thinking about from, Oh, I guess it was uh, Ray from the Facebook group and he was talking about more on the casting and I'm not sure if you're, if you get a, a, go deep into the casting instruction, but he was talking about, one of his questions was, is fixing, you know, his struggle is the tailing loop. Do you you get into the whole steps of, you know, casting instruction and do you you have a tip for somebody that is getting that tailing loop?
0: I mean, I have a tailing loop myself. I think, you know, casting, if you want to become a proficient caster, you know, you just have to. You just have to work on it, you know, and spend some time out in the park, but, you know, kind of keep it, your your stroke smooth and try not to overpower it. And, you know, obviously, um, it's important to be a good caster. You have to be able to get the fly, um, to the fish. Uh, for me, you know, we do a fair amount of dry fly fishing, considerably more nymph fishing, but for me, it's more about, you know, getting, um, you know, the real game begins once the fly's on the water. So if you're, if you're a pretty good caster and you can get the fly where you need to be, you're going to be fine. But then, um, you know, you need to manage your flies, you know, mending and different uh, things like that to, to get a good drift. So that's, I think, to me, the most important thing is when the flies hit the water, what mm. you do with after that.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. And do you have any casting uh, types of casts you use frequently to make sure your fly gets in the right position? And then once it hits the water, what, what's, what's the process look like?
0: Well for a dry fly fisherman I think you know you have to you have to have uh, a good reach mend to be successful because um, if 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 you have your fly you know if your fly comes in and precedes the tippet uh, you have a much higher um, opportunity of catching that fish I mean um, if the fish sees the fly first you're you're gonna catch more fish so if you're a good um, dry fly angler with a good reach mend you know you what you want to have a lot of specialty cast you know slack cast and s casts and stuff like that, but I think a reach mend is really, really important. And then for a nymph fisherman, obviously, you need to be a good mender as well, but you're doing more of a, like a stack mending approach where you're just trying to keep some slack into the system. Once it tightens up, then that's when you're dragging. So uh, a little slack is your friend Yep. Yep. when you're nymphish.
1: Cool, cool. And what do you think, um, getting back to the midges, is you know, for you or most people is, is the hardest thing about fishing midges.
0: I think, you know, most people just have a fear of fishing small flies as a general rule, but, you know, like, um, a lot of the flies that I tie, I, I try to, you know, time on a, a wide gape hook. And I think that's important, you know, like the TM code 2488, it's a straight ice scud hook. So, you know, I mean that, that obviously, um, helps stack the odds in your favor um, using, you know, a good, um, hook. And then obviously setting the hook is, is important too. I mean, a lot of people, um, they, they get into a bad habit and they're setting the hook sometimes upstream, which you always want to set downhill. So the hook set should be a a firm stroke, but a short range of motion. So, you know, fairly firm, but 12 to 18 inches, um, good hard set you know back into the trout's jaw is what i recommend doing and um, you have to be realistic too with with when you're fishing you know 22s and 24s that you're not going to land all your fish you're going to land about 50 percent of your fish and on a good day so i think again having realistic expectations is important to fishing too
1: gotcha and what is uh some of the fish on those small flies i mean you guys i guess have pretty big fish there what's a what do you consider a, a large fish on that on your system? There
0: depends upon the time of year, you know. In Cheeseman, it's it's uh, you know we don't we're not dealing with migratory fish like we do when we go out and fish the South Platte, you know, out between spanning eleven mile where you have uh, lake run fish coming in the shoulder seasons, or you have fish that are approaching thirty inches, uh, but. You know, in in Cheeseman and Deckers, the areas that that I do the majority of my guiding, you know, the fish average in there, the browns are, you know, 9 to 15 inches and the rainbows are 10 to 20. Occasionally we see some fish that exceed the 20 inch mark. But, um, you know, we we just catch a lot of nice 14 to 17 inch fish on average.
1: And are these mostly a mix of browns and rainbows?
0: It is. um, The biomass is is right around 5,000 fish per mile up in Cheeseman, um, considerably less than that down at Deckers. But, um, the cool thing about Cheeseman is it's, it's wild trout. It's a self-sustaining population of rainbows and browns, about 60% rainbows, 40% browns. And I think most people know and understand brown trout are considerably more difficult to fool than rainbows. So the, the rainbows are typically the bulk of the catch. Um, You know, you catch a lot more rainbows this time of year because the brown trout, they they have a tendency to kind of slow their feeding down as the water starts to get cooler. So brown trout, you know, they they prefer water temperatures in that 52 to 62 range. And rainbows, they really, their their peak um, temperature preferences are like 42 to 52 degrees. So they each kind of have their season. You know, we catch more brown trout in the summer when the water's warmer, specifically when the uh the lake starts to spill over the spillway then the water temperatures get warmer and the brown trout get considered to be more active
1: gotcha yeah i was just thinking the so the cheeseman canyon now do you know the history there that that's kind of a unique name where where the cheese cheese man came from
0: yeah it's walter scott Cheeseman. um he was one of the influential people in the denver water company you know back in the day and so they named um they named the dam after um Walter Scott Cheeseman and he, uh, this super, super influential guy, you know, in water. And then the, the, the Gill trail was named after Carl Gill, who was one of the uh, first settlers in the area. So there's a lot of, uh, rich history in the Canyon and, uh, all the holes have been named. And so, you know, I think that's part of it, you know, as a, as a fly fisher that, um, frequents Cheeseman Canyon is to, to learn some of the history, um, dam was built in 1905 so and you know all the holes have been named and it's just fun to kind of know that know the holes in the history
1: that's cool what's the do you have like on on fishing etiquette just some general tips i mean and what does it look like out there so you you come up and somebody's fishing i mean how far down are you going away from these people or how does that all work
0: i think etiquette really depends upon you know the uh the number of people on the river i think you know, as the crowds increase, then everybody needs to be a little bit more flexible. But I think the thing that's most frustrating, you know, is, is an angler is if there's only a handful of people on the river and somebody starts fishing right next to you. I think that's a poor choice. You know, I mean, if, if the, if it's not crowded, give, give guys some room, you know, I mean, give them three, four holes. There's nothing worse than somebody short holing you, you know, when it's it's uh, not necessary and so you know if it's a busy weekend and the holes are limited then obviously everybody needs to work together and, and if you have to pop above a guy that's that's part of it you know but um, i think it's just a, a judgment call you just got to try to do as you'd want to be treated out there
1: mhm nice so uh, i wanted to get back to again we're thinking uh fishing the midges uh, maybe under a strike indicator or a a dry dropper what's the you know just typically rod uh kind of line um and i guess you talked about the leader just typical nine foot uh five weight sort of thing or any special things to think about there
0: yeah i mean a, a nine foot five weight is is pretty ideal for most of the stuff you'll encounter in the rocky mountains um it, it, it's good for drys, nymphs and streamers um you know and but if i was gonna uh if i was gonna you know try to specialize things a little bit more a four weight's great for dries and six weight is great for streamers. So um, you know, you can you can kind of um get as specialized as you want with that kind of stuff. But for for your traditional nymph fishing, yeah, nine foot, five weight, and I, I like you know, fairly stiff action rod, um, just so you get nice, quick, crisp um hook sets, and I think uh good for mending and and just overall I think it's it's the way to go. It's just my preferences it's a little bit stiffer rod than, than uh softer rod.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Like, uh, and you hear a lot, you know, we talked about the Euro nipping a lot of the kind of, uh, you know, the real sensitive tip. Is that something else you're all looking for there?
0: You know, I, I um, I like just the classic, you know, tip flex rod, you know, it's kind of a rod. Um, but you know, I, 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 uh, I just like, I just like quick, you know, hook sets and and um you know i don't think you really uh need a 10 foot but you know some people do some people do use a 10 footer so um that's another option that you can look into but just as a general rule like i said nine foot five weight rather fast action um is what i like to use
1: okay and, uh, and I was going to talk a little bit about, so we, we covered the indicators. Um, you know, obviously you're going to be fishing those quite a bit unless you're doing, uh, <laughs> using, you know, dries or whatever, but is there a time when you're going to go away from indicators or, and, and dry droppers?
0: Yeah, there's times when, there's times when, you know, the fish become sensitive to indicators and, and there's a few rivers, you know, like the Taylor and the frying pan that you'll see fish that'll actually move out of the way of an indicator. So you know, that's a good time to just tight line it. And, um, you know, it's, it's an effective strategy as well. And I would have to say that most of the time I do fish with an indicator, but there are times, again, you have to think outside the box and, and it kind of adapt to the, uh, conditions.
1: Okay. And I was thinking about, we, we might've already kind of covered a little bit of this, but just tips for on heavy use waters, how to find those fish. I mean, you talked about site fishing. Um, is there anything else, you know, that would help somebody, you know, on those places where things have just been hammered and you're coming in maybe at the end of the day after fish have all, are already been, you know, hammered on any way they can find some more, some fish out there or, and maybe some bigger fish as well.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, just having a, a good idea on the structure of the river, you know, how to, how to read the river, but, you know, being able to fish, you know, some of the, the in between spots, you know, some of the skinny water, some of the, the pocket water is a great example. I mean, there's so much um, structure and so much opportunity in pocket water. And I think as a general rule, a lot of people avoid fishing pocket water just because it's difficult to fish and it's difficult to negotiate it. So a lot of times when, um, when conditions get crowded, I'll, I'll fish, you know, those areas that the average angler is not going to fish. And, um, and a lot of that times it is, it's that pocket water it's that in between water. It's the water that, might not look like it's um great water but you know there's there's little buckets and little depressions and little slots in there that oftentimes those are the areas that that i target when when the fishing you know when the pressure gets intense
1: gotcha gotcha so those fish are going to hold not necessarily i mean they're going to hold throughout the run i mean that uh, we've definitely chatted about that you know um with other guests that you know they're they're not always going to be up in the pools are you fishing them uh, do you fish uh, all the different water types or are there any, I do, you know, yeah,
0: yeah it, it really depends upon the time of year too, you know, I mean, obviously you're not going to find as many fish in the, in the pocket water, um, during the winter months when the, when the temperatures drop and they're kind of moving into that slower stuff, but, um, you can still find some areas, some plunge pools and some soft water margins, even in the winter that, that you'll find, um, fish in the, in some of those deeper uh, holes. But, um, I just tried to, I tried to, to, you know, fish it all. I try to teach it all. And, Again, you know, I mean, a lot of times the fish will move into those areas that are less pressured in some of some of those pockets and um, riffles that uh don't look as fishy as others, but oftentimes, you know, if you if you got a keen eye, you can still find fish in those areas and that's kind of where I have to go sometimes when it gets busy.
1: Gotcha. And is a, is a good technique for somebody new uh coming out to a new tailwater to you know just cover as much water as you can if you had a if you had a half a day to fish would you say just start at the top and work your way down or start at the bottom and work your way up or uh, how how do you recommend you know somebody new to it
0: yeah i mean i would i would you know find the area that you want to fish and i usually start at the bottom and then i'm methodical you know i mean i I, you don't want to you don't want to leave any money on the table but at the same time you know you don't want to wear out your welcome so you know i i try to get into a, a particular run and I like to be systematic, you know, and and cover the water well and then move on. Um, I think, you know, the first few drifts through any hole or run or riffle is going to be your best chance of catching a fish. So, um, you know, work the run thoroughly, methodically, and then move on to the next hole. And um, if you're fishing pocket water, then, you know, you really do have to have more of a dissecting approach where you're just, you know, fishing the seams, fishing the pockets, the pools, and again, just being thorough and methodical and just moving your way through it.
1: Gotcha. So you're not necessarily getting into one section and hitting it with a certain pattern and then switching up and going back through with another one. And then maybe multiple patterns, you're you're more moving, covering water.
0: I cover a lot of water. There are times though, that, you know, you might, um, you know, nymph a hole. And then if you haven't, you know, got the results that you were looking for, you might run a streamer through it. Um, you know, I tend to carry multiple rods, um, in the shoulder seasons when, when streamers can be effective in fooling some of the larger fish. So, you know, I mean, you can certainly, you know, do multiple tactics in, in, in one area, you know, you might start throwing a dry fly and then nymph it and you can even run a streamer through it. But, um, most of the time, I mean, the majority I'm carrying just my, my nymph rod and and that's what I'm using, you know, just being real methodical and again, trying to sight fish and keep my flies in front of feeding fish and, and just, um, moving and covering a lot of water. I think that's, that's a huge tip. I think you just got to keep, keep finding fresh fish.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. The streamers, uh, I definitely, maybe we'll save it for uh next time to talk about streamers. I actually had Kelly Gallup. Well, oh, he's coming up here in a little, a little while to talk about streamers and we go deep into some of the history there. And it was kind of funny because we got into a whole conversation about some stuff that I wasn't expecting on kind of his background and stuff. And it was, it was pretty funny, but Um, it kind of got me thinking, you know, you know, for you, is there anything that, um, you know, something that, you know, people know you've got books, you got a lot of resources out there, anything you want to share that people don't know about you?
0: Um, gosh, I I don't know. I just consider myself to be one of the guys and I, uh, consider myself to be extremely, um, fortunate to have made a living in this industry. And and I I do, I just, I, I like sharing. I like learning. I like everything about this um supportive wife and family and and I, gosh i'm so, just so you don't
1: have any you don't have any uh kind of create i'll just give you the example with kelly uh people could look forward to this uh coming up here but he, you've probably heard some of his flies he's got these crazy flies like um i think one of them's like the tits up he's got the dungeon the sex dungeon i think I don't know, he's got all these like kind of porn names right and I said, uh, I said, Kelly, so what's, um, what's up with all the porn names, you know, and were you like a porn star back in the seventies or something? And, and he didn't, he didn't deny it, which, uh, you know, it was kind of, kind of funny that conversation, but so you don't have any, you don't have any baggage that, uh, you know, if you're running for off political office, you'd be kicked out. I don't think so. <laughs> <I'm aware> of. <laughs> all right. Good. Good. I, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's, uh, always funny. I, uh, there's uh you know the conversations that, that we've had here has been part of the fun you know gear rock you know, we we talked about the the 60s so i get a little hit from some of the listeners too because th- sometimes they come back and say hey keep on the fly fishing we want to learn about fly fishing so this is uh this is good i think we've covered it pretty well is there anything we haven't covered here when you think of tailwaters and fishing tiny flies so far
0: i think we've touched on a lot of on a lot of important things you know it's uh it's just important to uh just keep wanting to learn, you know, just always remain open-minded to, to getting better every time you get out, and I think that uh, if you do that, I think you're going to go a long ways and be a very successful tailwater angler.
1: Okay, and I uh, I actually have a few. Do you want to do a, um, a little rapid-fire round here? Sure. I've got uh, just a few questions I always like to ask, and um, we, we can probably bust through these pretty quick. Um, you know, starting this off, I, I like to ask the kind of the two two and two which is you know your your favorite two flies your two tips and maybe two resources when it comes to tailwaters and and uh you know and I guess we could talk about midges or tiny flies but do you have a first start off you mentioned a couple do you have your two if you just had to go for your two uh, midge patterns
0: I think you know my two favorite midge patterns are no doubt a a black beauty of some sort you know there's a lot of variations of that and you got the I got a tungsten bead on and I got a mercury bead on and I got a flashback variation in the standard one. And so a black beauty of some sort. And then the top secret midge. And those are my two go-to uh, midge patterns, 365 days a year.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'm trying to figure out, I'll, I'll put a link um, to those. There's probably some videos out there and some photos of those flies. So I'll get those covered and, so yeah, and you've mentioned a bunch of tips so far. Do you have any? Uh, maybe a couple of your main go-to tips. Uh, maybe we've talked about already, but just your your top two for fishing uh, tailwaters and midges.
0: I think you know probably one of the most important things, or two things. You know, um, you know, presentation. That it's everything. I mean, it's um, if if you have a good presentation, you're going to catch fish, and you know, it's um, it's critical. I mean good technique equals fish. And a friend of mine and a colleague of mine a long time ago, Dan Wright said that, and, you know, I still believe it today. And I did then. And so there, there's really no substitution for, for solid technique out there. And then I think sight fishing, you know, that's, that's key. Uh, you know, just being able to read the water and have your flies in front of fish, um, and, and not, you know, randomly, um, fishing water that, may not have fish in it, I mean, obviously you're going to do so much better if you're keeping your flies in front of fish.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's, I think that's a really cool tip because, um, you know, probably a lot of people don't realize the sight fishing piece. They go in just kind of looking like, you know, there's obstructions, some different water, but that's cool to know that you can go in there and actually target those fish and see them. I and I guess for, for streamers, if you're using streamers, it's going to be the same thing. You're going to be site fishing as well.
0: Yeah, you can, you know, streamers, you can you can sight fish and you can you can also just blind fish and uh you know typically when i'm fishing with streamers i'll fish two streamers i'll have uh one dark streamer and one light streamer and i usually run like a white streamer up front and then i trail something you know gray brown or black behind it and it's a tandem rig and and it's an attractor the white's an attractor but i can see the streamer coming and i can see the fish chasing it so i can kind of more of a locator fly and that's how what i do with my streamers
1: gotcha Gotcha. I was just looking at the show. This will be the show notes for this will be at wetflyswing.com slash fifty six. So I'll have all the links here to the, to the things we talked about. And and we talked about the rods. Is there a um, a rod uh, type or company that, that you recommend? You like to, that would be good for this this type of fishing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm uh, I fish with Sage rods, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I mean, I I I, I like um, the X and I like the one. And the VXP; those are the rods that I fish with most of the time.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. And we don't talk uh, a lot about reels, but um, is there a a reel company? And then also, what what line would you recommend?
0: I fish a lot of Ross reels and a lot of Sage reels. Yep. Um, And I uh, I use um, Scientific Angler's fly lines and Tippet. Yeah, I like that. uh, The new amplitude. infinity smooth i mean that's a that's a great line new line um floats great and it's just a it's a fantastic option
1: perfect and do you on the lines is it is it important to uh you clean your lines a lot
0: i try to you know i mean i usually you'll just get a a pad and clean them and um you know i mean a fly line unfortunately they cost a lot of money but you want to you want to take care of them so i think if you maintain them and keep them clean then they're going to they're going to float better for you. And they just respond better for you. You can mend better, you can cast better. And that's an important thing.
1: Yep. And cast better. Yeah. And everything else. That's cool. And so, and then your two, um, resources, I know you have some books we'll we'll talk about here in a sec, but, uh, maybe a couple of resources that aren't necessarily your own, your own stuff that you would recommend for somebody.
0: Well, you know, I think one thing you you have to keep an eye on, on the flows, you know, for, for us, it's, uh, it's important to get that, you know, get that information, um, on, on the, the flows before you go fishing. So, um, the division of natural resources has a, a gauging system that you can, you know, get the flows. I think that's important. And then, um, I don't know, just, you know, the, the network of guides and, and colleagues that I work with is, is critical. And, uh, I try to, you know, share that information on my fishing report. So, you know just having people in the know you know guides on the colorado river guides over on the blue river, guides on the you know south platte so that kind of information you know you, you you get good information from your colleagues and then you can share it with the angling community
1: gotcha so if somebody wanted some information on that area they could just call up the uh call up your shop and get some information on what's going on and head on out
0: exactly and i have a fishing report on my website that updates the flows and then the current conditions what's going on eyes and so on and so forth
1: okay and one thing just going back to the it's the blue angler uh, fly shop
0: yeah it's uh our our fly shop's the blue quill angler the blue quill yeah yeah the blue quill angler and then uh we have a website there as well and then um i have my personal website which is the one that we discussed earlier in the show
1: oh gotcha okay and what uh, just just briefly could you take us back to that moment when you became a a co-owner of of the fly shop what what that you know, take us back to when that, when that happened, what that felt like?
0: I I started uh, guiding at the Blue Quill back in 1992. And uh, I was working behind um, four other very seasoned guides at the time. So I was at the bottom of the food chain, but I was able to work my way up. And then, um, you know, in 2002, then uh, I became partners with uh, Jim Cannon who has since retired and moved to Florida and just enjoying life. And then uh, um, now I have two other partners, uh, Steve Parrott and Dennis Steinbeck. So um, yeah, it's, it's been a great, it's been a great ride and, and uh, shop's been in business for 30 years. And uh, it's uh, it's just, it's been great. We've been able to uh, supply um, knowledge and, and um, materials and, stuff to people that have the same passion that we do
1: yeah and are you going to be um, guiding do you think is is this like until you're you know old age or, or do you have other plans with the guiding is it something you're going to stick with
0: I, I want to keep guiding for a while I'm 55 now so I've uh, been doing it for 25 years and um, I used I used to do more guiding now but I'm down I've backed off to about hundred 175 days um, a year so I hope that I can you know do this for another 10 years and then I'll probably you know slide back into more of the fly shop role but right now I'm I'm not in the shop that often and the good news is is we've got very talented people that run the day-to-day operations of the shop and it gives me the opportunity to stay out in the field where I really like to be
1: gotcha sounds awesome and then on your books do you have one book you want to mention uh, that you're kind of more most proud of or something you want to note note there well,
0: I, my uh, fly fishing guide to the South Platte River uh, is going to be out in about two weeks. It's a revision of my original project that I did back in 2005, but that's a completely revised edition, um, so I'm excited to get that back out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a whole new look, a whole new feel, and, and it's been updated, and, and several sections have been added, for instance, the South Platte, Denver, and the good conversation on the 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 still waters out in South Park. So that that's always a special project. Cause it was my first one, but it's completely updated. And then Colorado Guide Flies, I think that was one of the most rewarding books that I've written. So it's 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 been fun. I've enjoyed them all. They've all been a little bit different, but those are probably the two most important to me.
1: Okay. And do you have a uh, piece of gear it's kind of your go-to piece of gear. It doesn't necessarily have to be fly fishing or fly gear or anything. When you're out fishing or traveling, that uh, you kind of can't leave home without.
0: Yeah, I think uh, probably the most important piece of gear for me is is my um, you know my my waist pack because mm-hmm. uh, it's got everything I need to you know to to work.
1: Yeah, and is uh, that that's your so that's your, actually your vest. You go with like the waist pack.
0: Yeah, I've got a fish pond. Um, I've got the the guide pack, and and uh, it's great, great piece of gear. It's, mm-hmm. it just I can keep you know numerous fly boxes and all the the tools of the trade in there, and that's uh, what I work out of every day. So probably that's the single most important piece of gear I carry.
1: Cool. Yeah, fish pond. I haven't. Uh, I guess I've had some fish pond gear. They they have some some good stuff. And I chatted with Russell Miller. Haven't had him on yet, but uh, I know he works for Fish Pond and also does some competitive angling so um yeah that, that, that's cool um well i'm just uh, just about there just um one to check in one one thing i just had a note on the irrigation i didn't want to go deep into this but i thought it was interesting when you talked about the cheeseman canyon the guy a pretty prominent person part of the water department i i know that um you know some of the rivers i fished there's been issues with water in the past where you know to the extreme where some of these you know the irrigation has you know blown out some of these tailwater fisheries um you know, that maybe used to be good. It sounds like in your area, there is some fluctuation, but it sounds like the river is the number one priority there and, and the fishery. Is that kind of how you see it?
0: Well, the the main goal of, of Cheeseman Reservoir um, is to supply downstream irrigation demand and water for the city of Denver. And, I mean, that's that takes precedence over every, anything. But the good news is, is that uh, the Denver Water Board um, works closely with the anglers they they monitor flows they monitor um, temperatures and they really do try to in addition to providing water for the city and the um outlying areas they really do try to take care of the fishery and I think that's that's really important for instance, this past year we had a a flash flood that dumped a lot of sediment and um, debris in the river and um, they did flushes for us. I mean, so they're really concerned not only about delivering water, but they're also concerned about the resource. And so I think that that's part of the reason why this fishery is so successful is because of the management of it. It's just, it's taken, taken good care of. That's cool.
1: All right, Pat. Well, um, maybe you can just uh, let us know in the next six to 12 months if you have anything else you want to note here coming out or anything you have any big uh, things going on.
0: Not really. That's uh, Right now, the biggest thing is going to be the South Platte book coming out. And then um, it's uh, that time of year where I'm doing quite a bit of traveling and yeah. speaking to fly fishing clubs and doing shows and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's um, I'll be out and about and um, look forward to visiting with people and
1: That's great. different areas that we go to. Are you going to get around um, – do you get around just mostly your area or do you get around the country? Or what, what areas do you cover when you do – on this, the tour of the circuit?
0: Yeah, I, get, I go everywhere. I go wherever the demand is. I mean, go got a fly fishing show out in Edison to Trout Fest down in Texas and a lot of the local, local stuff around here. I'm going to be in Wisconsin and um, Pennsylvania. I'm, I'm getting around quite a bit cool. these days, so I feel very blessed for that opportunity.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we'll keep up with you. and I guess the best place is um, com if people want to find you.
0: Yep, and then Instagram. I do a lot of stuff on Instagram. Oh, pat dorsey fly fishing on instagram um you can see the day-to-day action and the photographs um that's that's probably something too that i'm very passionate about photography i mean that's one thing that that i enjoy a whole lot is is just outdoor photography
1: yeah i've noticed that on your instagram i'm glad you brought that up because i i've seen you got some beautiful pictures there it's it's obvious the difference when you see an instagram from somebody who's kind of working you know uh, kind of a pro or really working on versus the others and do you have maybe one one photo tip you might uh, leave us with for maybe fishing or just outdoor
0: you know it's photography is it's it's, it's like anything else it just takes you know time and to to master it and and uh i don't know a good friend of mine you know he just said you know just produce good images don't ever post anything that's crummy (laughs) and um so you know just um you know, learn how to read the light and take good images, and and that's what it's all about. is is um, it, it helps tell the story, and you can share the day with your customers, and and let you know your followers know what you're up to. And I think people really enjoy that.
1: Nice, nice. All right, well that's perfect, Pat. I'll uh, I'll let you get out here, but just wanted to thank you for coming on and sharing uh, all your knowledge and uh, wisdom here. I think um, there's probably a few questions that are co- going to come up from this because we couldn't get to everything, but I think we covered tailwaters and. And what you do out there. So, uh, yeah, I'll keep in touch. And uh, if anything comes up, I'll, I'll drop you a line. Sounds great. All right. We'll see you later. Thanks for having me on. All right. Bye now. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 56. And I want to give a shout out uh, really quickly to some of our new Patreons this week over at Patreon. Uh, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. But I want to give a quick shout-out to Hunter, Hunter and Greg, and, uh, and another shout-out to Jimmy, my man, my man Jimmy. I uh, just wanted to uh, thank you guys for supporting the show. And uh, you can head over to, uh, if you want to join the journey and go a little deeper with the show, get bonus content, uh, you can head over to Patreon, check us out, and there's a bunch of cool um, information there, some some bonus stuff. So, And one other thing before I let you go, um, you can text WFS to three one nine nine six that's an easy way to subscribe um, so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today i'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hope to connect with you online or on the river later thanks for listening to the wet fly swing fly fishing show for notes and links from this episode visit wetflyswing.com And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.